All right, well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. It's been uh, a while since I've been up here, and uh, my name is Paul. I'm the associate pastor. It's been six weeks since I've preached. I'm sure you guys were counting as well, like six weeks. Um, yeah. yeah, a lot's happened uh, for, for me and our family. We uh, got COVID, first of all. You guys may have heard that. I'm not hearing any cheers for that. You're like, yeah, we're one of the fallen. Um, and uh, also, I, you did hear this. I did graduate. And, uh, yep, I had, um, but after I graduated, I still had a class to do. You guys, have, all, have you been there? You know when you graduate, but you still have another class? Finished that a couple weeks ago. Um, so now I'm really feeling done. And, uh, yeah, so um, uh, w- one thing I wanted to say is, is you guys were listening uh, to J- my wife's announcements. Jamie, great job. And I am going to be leading the Cultural Journeys testimony. And just wanted to uh, explain that, you know, that came out of doing that Gospel Academy, came out of the, uh, the, the meetings that we've had with the three team, which is our elders, our council members, and our staff, really discussing what does it mean to be a multicultural church. We are a multicultural church. And, um, and what, you know, we did a survey of many of you took that survey of how can we continue to lean into that uh, reality of our church. And one of the, the most, the easiest um, action step from the survey and the conversation was we need to tell more stories. We need to hear from each other. And so let me encourage you to do this class because one thing I've noticed is that we don't often take time to really examine what it means to have an ethnic and cultural identity. We kind of assume it, right? We live in it, but it actually is helpful to take some time to really walk through it. In fact, when we did, we actually did this with the three team, with the elders and council, and uh, one of the, the, the persons who gave their testimony commented to me that um, I hadn't really thought of this my whole life. I haven't even reflected on these, these experiences I've had until I gave my testimony like a couple months ago. So I encourage you to do that. It helped me. Um, I am biracial Latino. I'm a fourth generation Latino. It would have been easy for me to just assume I had a pasted on uh, Mexican last name. But when I really, ex- <laughs> not, you could cheer for that, I guess. But when I, really, uh, when I really examined it, when I really looked at what shaped me, I realized I was much more shaped by my Latino family, my Mexican family, than I realized. It helped me understand how God had made me. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, wherever you're at, whatever ethnicity you have, uh, uh, go ahead and participate. But as it said, uh, I'm trying to figure this out. There is some limits to space. Um, so uh, one of the things I, I mentioned, I graduated, I had a party and uh, uh, people gave me gifts. One of my friends was so excited. Um, I thought this was funny. He's like, he wanted me to open his gift with him there. It was a biography of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was uh, a famous Puritan preacher in the 1700s. Uh, and I think the reason he was excited to give it to me, he would probably say, I have like Puritan vibes um, at least theologically, right? And so if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But the point is, is that he's like, I think you'll enjoy Jonathan Edwards. I think you will, you're like him in some ways, um, or at least I appreciate, I would appreciate things about him. But what, as I've been reading it, I've, I found it fascinating that the Puritans of the 1700s, um, they had this obsession with trying to figure out, at least I would call it an obsession, they were obsessive about trying to determine who was really converted. 
who is really, truly a Christian? And, and in fact, I was uncomfortable with some of their practices around that. Like, for example, um, they would really scrutinize someone if they truly had a real faith before they let them, let them into membership. They had to kind of prove that they were like a genuine Christian. In fact, Jonathan Edwards himself had a powerful conversion experience when he was in college. And, um, but at the time, he questioned if it was real. Because there was just this culture of really scrutinizing. And his dad, who was a pastor, would not allow his own son to be a member because he questioned if it was a genuine conversion, okay? And so I don't, you know, I hope I don't give off those vibes. I do not want to be that kind of Puritan. Um, But I think that there is an important question, a timeless question, that the Puritans were getting at. Um, And that is, what does it mean to really be a Christian? What does it mean to truly be a Christian? What is true saving faith? In other words, I think the Puritans were concerned to disciple people past a superficial faith and into something truly spiritual, truly authentic. And I think we uh, can relate to that. I think that's something many of us are asking questions, want to know, want to experience. We want to experience something real and transcendent and spiritual. So how do we know our faith is real? How can we experience a genuine um, encounter with God that lasts, that secures our salvation forever? How can we know that's real? How can we have it? Maybe some of you have been seeking that for a while and don't, haven't seemed to land it on it. And so how can we have this genuine, authentic faith? And I believe that is a biblical concern. That question that is on our minds, that question that we care about, a true saving faith, what is it? How do we have it? How do we live that out? That's a biblical concern. God wants to answer that question. And in fact, I would argue that the Gospel of John it's like, a P, it's like John's PhD dissertation. How many of you are in the PhD program right now? Raise your hand right now. A few people are like awkwardly. Yeah, I am. Uh, this is, the Gospel of John is his PhD dissertation on what is biblical faith. What is belief? The word, by the way, in the Greek, the word belief and faith are the same Greek word. So if you look at the Gospel of John, it's all over the place. He's trying to define what does it mean to really, truly believe? What is biblical faith? Um, And so we're going to see today, Jesus is going to have an encounter with what I'm calling an insider. He's going to talk about this idea of a genuine, what what does it mean to truly be saved with someone who's been in the faith for a long time and, and and has achieved a high status and has a long track record and a rigorous track record of knowing scripture and even teaching scripture. And he's going to come to Jesus, and Jesus is going to surprise him with his answer. Uh, so we're, going to, we're in John chapter 3, and we're going to look at his encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him rather abruptly, I'll add. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless 
one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's part of the Pharisees, which was a sect of Jewish leaders who were known for their discipline and rigor in studying the scriptures. Um, And he was a leader amongst them. So he was more than maybe a pastor. He would be like a regional leader of some kind. Maybe he would sit on the board of like the Gospel Coalition. Maybe he was one of their keynote speakers at their conferences. He would be like a seminary president. So Nicodemus is big time. I mean, in fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel par excellence. You are the teacher. You are the one that that, that Israel looks to to explain the Bible. And we also see that he's coming to Jesus at night. And I think that has a couple meanings. I think one, it's saying that he's being secretive, okay? And so we know if you read the Gospel of John that um, people were afraid to believe in Jesus because of the Pharisees, because of the religious leaders opposed Jesus. So they didn't want to be seen by these religious leaders as believing in Jesus. So some disciples believed in secret. And so it's no surprise that Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, uh, wouldn't want to be seen um, going to have a conversation with Jesus. And so he does it secretly. But it also implies that Nicodemus is sympathetic towards Jesus. And we see that uh, when he says, he basically gives the standard answer that most of the world gives about Jesus. Hey, you're a good teacher. You have a connection with God. Of course, Jesus is going to quickly blow that out of the water, that that is an extremely shallow view. Not wrong, just shallow. And, um, but the other thing that the night can mean in the Gospel of John, it's symbolic. It can mean spiritual lostness. It can mean a lack of understanding. Uh, it can mean spiritual darkness, confusion. And I think that makes sense of what's happening with Nicodemus. Here he is going, taking a big risk to talk to Jesus, he obviously has something on his mind. And I think his conversation with Jesus demonstrates that because we're going to see that as Jesus uh, gives him his answers, he's confused, he's bothered. Jesus knows what's on his heart. He's asking something. He's saying, Jesus, he doesn't come out and say it, which is interesting. He's being maybe subtle. Maybe he doesn't want to be super direct. Maybe he's just a little too ashamed of himself to ask the question directly. But Jesus knows what he's asking. Nicodemus is saying, who are you really? And can I be a part of that? I think because Nicodemus, even though he was a religious ruler, even though he had all this learning and experience, I think he knew he was missing something. I think he knew there was something lacking in his experience of his faith, and here Jesus could give him some answers. And so that's what maybe the night also represents. So I want to stop and acknowledge that I think this is a very real phenomenon amongst insiders, people who've been in the church for a while, maybe they grew up in the church, that we can feel lost and confused at times. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. In fact, I think we should expect that. We should expect um, that uh, people even within the church are going to at times have some very basic questions about where you are at with God and in your faith. Don't be ashamed of that. We need to normalize that. In fact, I think we should give some Nicodemus some credit for even going to Jesus. How many Pharisees went to Jesus to have a genuine conversation with him? Only Nicodemus, as far as I know. 
So let's not harden our hearts as insiders to the real churning and questions and maybe lack of understanding that's in our lives. That's, very, that's to be expected. Um, and so let's ask those questions. Let's figure out how to get those out into the open. And so... Um, now, so he answers Jesus. Now, the way Nicodemus, uh, sorry, the way Jesus answers Nicodemus is he says, for you to know who I am, for you to truly know who I am. Nicodemus, you see some things about me, but for you to really get it, for you to be a part of my kingdom, you have to be born again. In other words, positive thoughts about Jesus do not make you saved, do not make you a Christian. You have to be born again. That's an abrupt answer. Out of, out of nowhere, but I think he's, and we, this is part, this is what my sermon's about, is why does Jesus answer Nicodemus this way? Why does he talk to an insider? Why does he present to us this learned man, and that's where this teaching of being born again comes in? I want to explore that. And I think partly to start off with what we need to understand about what Scripture teaches, and I think what Jesus is getting at, is that the human nature is unable We are unable to receive the things of God. So to be saved, we need a new nature. Our human nature as is, as the way we're born, will be opposed to God's kingdom. And so uh, listen to this in John chapter 1. This is is all over the gospel of John. I could have picked many passages. I'll stick with chapter 1. It says, The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, that is Jesus, and the world was made through Jesus, yet the world did not know its own creator and savior when he came. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born... So John has already introduced this concept. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So there is a chasm. When Jesus came into the world, there was this impossible chasm to cross of accepting Jesus when he came into the world. We do not know him or receive him unless we are born again. Born of the will of God. We will not accept him. And the, 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 what, we, what that's called uh, is the doctrine of total depravity. Maybe you've heard that phrase, total depravity. It sounds really, really negative, right? And so Christianity can kind of have a bad reputation as just describing human beings as really horrible and wicked. But that idea of total depravity is more nuanced than that. What, what Scripture is saying is it's, it's the idea that human beings will not come to God by their own strength and power. We are helplessly stuck in darkness and in the night and in sin. And there is nothing about us that wants anything to do when the light comes. We want to run away from it. We don't want it in our lives. That doesn't mean everything we do is completely evil and wicked. That's not what total depravity means. It means that we are bent away from God unless we are given through spiritual birth a new nature. And so the point that he's making, here's the point of Jesus, the start of his answer here is Christianity is not a man-achieved faith. We are unable 
to access God's kingdom by our own faculties, our own intelligence, our own merit, our own ability, our own willpower. In fact, not only can we not achieve, achieve it, we are opposed to it. Unless we are given a new nature. And so where does that nature come from? Well, the phrase born again um, implies not only a new nature, it literally means you must be fathered. So to be born again means there is a person that must give birth to you. You must be begotten, okay? It's the same word when we read, you know, that uh, Abraham begot Isaac, who begot uh, uh, Jacob. It's that same word, the begotten, fathered, to be born from a person. And so Nicodemus understands this, but it confuses him. So he responds, uh, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's saying, how can a person give birth to a person who has already been born? Right? Now, I want to just, just stop and observe that Nicodemus' answer is a little sarcastic, isn't it? Right? Wait a minute. You're saying, do I, how can I go back into my mother's womb again? He's a little, I would argue, it, a little frustrated. A, a little bit, uh, you know, um, discombobulated maybe. Um, and, and I think the reason is because here he is looking for answers. He's come to Jesus. He's complimented Jesus. And Jesus says something that's completely confusing to him. Here is this learned man, and he doesn't get it. How many of us who have a lot of learning and growth, or sorry, a lot of learning and knowledge in an area, find ourselves confused in that area or happy about that? It makes us a little frustrated, okay? Makes it like, ah, oh, at least I would be. I understand Nicodemus's pride coming through. Um, and so I think um, as insiders, we need to be prepared for this. That if we're looking for answers, um, uh, that f- are we, do we want answers that fit our categories? Or are we ready to hear God's answers? Are we ready to hear what God says is the case and are we ready to receive that? Or do, are we coming in wanting God's answers to fit our nice categories? So Nicodemus' categories are getting blown up. And he's struggling with it. But the problem is it's going to get even worse for Nicodemus. Because when he says, I have, when he's like, hey, how can I, you know, do, you have, do I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? That actually tees up Jesus very nicely for his, the fur, he further explains it, verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is very clear about what it means to be born again. Who is the begetter? Who is the person who gives birth to a person who has already been born? And so Jesus' answer is that there needs to be a spiritual birth, and that can only happen by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. God begets spiritual life in us. God gives birth to spiritual life. In other words, we receive a new nature by God's power alone. And so here is why Jesus tells Nicodemus, 
Here's his message at least, loud and clear. Christianity is not a man-achieved belief system. It is a God-achieved miracle of spiritual birth. Christianity is not a man-achieved belief system. Christianity is not just a set of doctrines to agree to. It's not just some words on a page that you agree or believe in. It is actually a miracle of spiritual birth by God's power. That is Christianity. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that God has done a miracle in your life to make you a new person. And so, what he's saying to Nicodemus, and what I believe the message is to us as insiders, is we are 100% dependent on God to intervene in our lives to be saved. And so, what I want to explore then is, why do we need to know that as insiders? If we're Christians, and this is Nicodemus, why does Jesus choose to give that message to us, and that's my burden as, as a preacher today? Um, and so I think uh, D.A. Carson starts to get at it a little bit. I was reading his commentary. He says this, What must be seized from Jesus' insistence on the new birth as the prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom is the fact that this truth is applied to a man of the caliber of Nicodemus. If Nicodemus, with his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? And so I believe what he is getting at is that salvation is meant, and this is why he, it, this, this conversation happens to Nicodemus for our benefit, is that salvation is meant to strip us of any ounce of pride in ourselves, so that it can be replaced with worship and thankfulness to God. You want to worship God? You need to believe it's all by his power. That's worship. That's the gratitude that last week, if you were here, our elder Ong Lip was teaching about. This gratitude, this worship. So why do we need to know this as insiders? Why do we need to know about our spiritual birth is achieved by God? Well, the first thing I would say is that it helps us have genuine humility. Genuine humility. What, what is the shadow side of being religious? What is the negative byproduct of uh, going to church a lot, reading your Bible, striving to be holy? What can be the dangerous byproduct of that? I think the answer is very clear. It's self-righteousness. It's that we look down on outsiders. We start to look down on people who don't have their act together, don't seem to get it, don't want to live a certain life, and we start to judge them as the bad people of the world. We start to separate ourselves from them in an unhealthy way. Um, and we even start to look down on each other. And so I believe what God wants to say to us through this doctrine of being born again is that it is supposed to kill any sense of self-righteousness because you were born by nothing else. You came to faith by nothing else. Your salvation is dependent on nothing else than God's spirit alone. Apart from any, anything that you brought to the table. You brought no works, nothing to the table that allowed you to be saved. 
apart uh, beyond somebody else. Nothing. That's supposed to humble us. That's supposed to kill judgment of others and help us be humble towards one another. And I think it also helps us um, have greater thankfulness. This is my second point. Why do insiders need to know about our new birth so we'd have greater thankfulness? Let me ask this question. This is a tough question here. I was even scared to ask it myself, but we're going to go here. What is the cause of your salvation? What the, going back to the Puritans, they like to define it as the efficient cause. What was the deciding cause of why you were saved? Was it you or was it God? Who do you give the credit to? And let me, let me put, put it in more terms we might understand. Is it God or is it my faith? And so sometimes there seems to be a tension. Does God save me or does God offer salvation to the world, but I have to somehow figure out how to accept it? And so there seems to be this tension between what is the role of God's power in giving new birth so that I may enter the kingdom and my role in having faith. Where do we give the credit? And so let me keep reading, see if we could get an answer here from Jesus. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? That maybe is a question that we're all asking at this point in the the text. He's kind of saying, how can this happen? If this is all about God's power, then what does that mean? Do you feel his confusion, his struggle with this teaching? And so Jesus responds and says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Um, He kind (laughs) of, let me tell you something, coming out of seminary, I think Jesus would be a tough rabbi to study under, okay? I don't think I would have gotten uh, the grades I've gotten under Jesus. Um, Don't you, you missed it, Nicodemus, you missed it. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Notice he's moved to the plural here. We, maybe him and John the Baptist and those who are, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you all, you Pharisees, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, how can you all believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is a a difficult passage to interpret. The commentators are a little all over the place. What's he talking about? Telling you about earthly things and heavenly things. And I believe, let let me kind of give you what I think is going on here. Nicodemus, um, you're struggling to believe me now, but there is going to come a time when you must believe in me when you see me lifted up. When I have died for your sins, that's when you need to get it. Then you will accept the heavenly things. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can't even begin to understand the heavenly things if you're not going to accept the earthly things. And so Jesus, what he's saying is, and let's see if we can follow this, he's saying there's actually two truths going on at the same time. There's earthly truth and heavenly truth. Do you guys see him saying that? 
And he draws attention to Nicodemus, and he says, first you need to get the earthly things. First you need to accept the basic things right in front of you. Then the heavenly things will open up to your understanding. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And so what's the earthly thing that he draws our focus to? As he says, Nicodemus, here's the testimony you must believe, that I will be lifted up. The Son of Man who ascended and descended. He is the unique one who comes from heaven. No, there are some people in the Bible who went to heaven from earth, and we all will experience that, but there's only one that came from heaven to earth, and that is Jesus. And so he's saying, you must believe in me because I am the one that is lifted up for you, just like Moses and the serpent. This is referring to when Israel got poisoned because of sin. The snakes bit all of them. And so Moses grabs a serpent. It becomes a bronze, um, uh, becomes a bronze uh, staff. And they just have to look at it and believe. And so Jesus is exhorting us in the same way that our focus needs to be on who Jesus is and to believe in him. Let's not get overly concerned about, am I truly born again? That's not, he says, first the earthly truth, what happened on earth before your eyes, a testimony is this, Christ died for your sins. Believe in that. Look to that. That's all you have to do is if you can look and believe that God would save you from your sins by his death on the cross, that is what you have to believe in to have eternal life. If you could accept that, then heavenly truth will be opened up to you. And I believe what he means by that, the heavenly truth, is God is working behind the scenes. God is working in heaven to arrange and cause the earthly things on this earth. You, but you will not believe in that if you don't accept the fact, the very fact of who Christ is. That's the gateway to understanding all that God has for us. All of who God is, is to believe in Jesus. So he draws our focus there. But what's pretty clear is then he wants you to understand the heavenly things about what it means, about how God is working so that we now understand the new birth. And so, um, that, that's why I think um, we want to make sure, let me, let me see here, let me, let me say this. Let, let me try to explain this. What is going on? Uh, what is the relationship between our faith and being born again? What is this? Jesus talks about both in this passage. You must be born again. And then he says a few verses later, you must believe. Which one is it? Is it God's power in me or am I believing? Um, and, and so let me give an illustration. Let me give an illustration. Let me ask you a question. Does the sun rise? Does, does it? <laughs> yes, it does, and no, it doesn't. We accept both, don't we? Because it depends what perspective we're looking at. In a real sense, we experience the sun rising, don't we? We see it. We wake up for it. You know, we, 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 we sing songs about it, maybe. 
tell poetry, I don't know, paint it, I don't know. We love the sunrise, we see it, that's our experience. But why does the sun rise? Well, because we see it rise? No. We know that there is something else going on beyond our experience, beyond what we can experience. And there's a scientific answer. The earth rotates around the sun, right? We accept both of them. Now, notice, though, how the scientific answer does not diminish the phenomenal answer. We, we still love our sunrises. Nobody wakes up to see an earth rotation. <laughs> we wake up to see the sunrise. It's perfectly right to talk like that. It's perfectly right to want to experience that. But what does it mean to be mature? It means to see both sides, to experience the sunrise and to know that the earth rotates. We wouldn't stop at just the sunrise. And so I believe that is the, the, what's going on here when he says there's earthly truth and heavenly truth. Okay, that so from one perspective, from the earthly perspective, we believe. We experience faith. We have a will. We have volition. And we're called to exercise that. That is real. That's as real as the sunrise, my friends. But also know why you ever came to believe in the first place. There is a heavenly truth. There is a truth that God is doing. God is at work. That you were born again by the Spirit. And so this is God's grace. So this is why we still evangelize, why we teach our kids, because we must believe. We must believe in Jesus. But God wants us to understand that there is a power behind that belief, that he is working behind that belief. Think about the joy that parents have when they give birth to a child. That's what God wants you to know, that there, he, you are not an accident of history. You are not a, um, a result of something about you that allowed you to believe. You are a result of God's loving fathering of you, begetting of you. He wants you to know that as you believe. Um, now, I know that this question of what is the relationship between God's power and our faith, that's a complicated question. And there's been different ways to handle that question throughout history. Okay, I gave you my best effort to explain the relationship between those two. And there's disagreements maybe even here in this room, and that's okay. But here's where we all need to get to. No matter what you believe about the relationship between our faith and God's power to give us birth, where we all have to get to is you have to give credit to Jesus Christ alone. God alone is responsible for your salvation. You somehow have to get there. And that produces thankfulness in us. That produces humility in us so that, number three, my last point here, so that we can have God-centered worship. We, shouldn't, we can worship God as he is. Um, and so, uh, you know, this passage describes God as a spirit, as wind. Okay, the word in wind and the word spirit is the same word in the Greek. And that's not an accident of linguistics. Well, it is an accident of linguistics, but we know that God ordained that. That the word wind would be the same word in Greek as the word spirit when Jesus was teaching. 
And I think what that's saying is that God is the ultimate free being. He, uh, my wife and I, we were a part of this homeschooling group called Wild and Free. And what they were trying to teach, uh, the, mostly the mothers, is that your child is a human being with a unique spirit. And you have to tap into that, right? You can't cause a human being to fit a tight formula and standard. We have to learn how to untap their unique humanity. And I believe that this passage is saying that God is the ultimate person who is wild and free. His spirit is free to give birth, to give his grace, um, and we must worship him as he is. And so this is how Paul, uh, let's go down, if, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to end it here, the last slide. This is how he says, oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? When Paul gets to the point where he doesn't always understand why God operates a certain way, he says he stops and he worships. How, there are things about you, God, that are unsearchable, that I cannot fathom. And that's part of what it means to worship God by definition, is that there are things about God that we will not fully understand and we acknowledge him, and that is good for our faith. That's what we're called to do. So I realize maybe there's some things in this sermon that were controversial or makes you confused or not sure what to, how to take it, so please feel free to come talk to me or Pastor Andrew, either here or set up an appointment with, with us. We'd love to talk to you. And if you're an insider just struggling with, you know, I do have questions. I'm not sure where I'm at. Don't be ashamed of that. Please come talk to me. Set up at a meeting. Um, and in the meantime, church, let's, let's have humility, let's have thankfulness that we're saved by God's power alone, by his new birth, um, that was his joy to bring salvation to our lives. Let me pray. Father God, we, um, we want to receive this word uh, from you with humility, Lord. We want to um, not be like hard-hearted insiders that want to... Um, uh, bring you into our categories, into our man-made understanding. We want to receive you as you reveal yourself so that we may have true humility, true thankfulness about the source of our salvation, Lord, that we are 100% dependent on you. Lord, let that kill any pride that lingers and um, that haunts us and that uh, is, is always around the corner in the shadows, the self-righteousness of religious people. Uh, Lord, help us have the humility, like even Nicodemus had to even ask the questions that are on our hearts. Lead people to have breakthrough. And Lord, would your spirit come and help people see and believe in you for salvation, the one who is lifted up for our sins, risen from the grave. Lord, you are the savior of the world. We just need to see and believe. But that is something that you empower. That is a miracle, not achieved by us, but achieved by you. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name.